Please stand for the reading of God's word. The sermon text and scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 13. Luke 13 verses 10 through 21. Luke chapter 13, 10 through 21. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's a pleasure to be here. My name's Brett Sweet, one of the pastors here at GCF, where we do exist to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. Uh, this is the last Sunday of the month, so we have question and answer time at the end. Get in your emails, uh, send me questions to that email address. Could be about the sermon, could be about the church, could be about Christianity, uh, and I'll do my best to answer them. What may not be able to answer them all. Uh, and one quick update we are likely in the coming weeks or short number of months to be having renovations done here. Um, and come back next week to learn more at the members' meeting. But this morning, I was, I was driving down here, and my wonderful daughter, Ren, made this point. She goes, I was in the church yesterday, Dad, and there was nobody inside it. And I, had, I was walking through, and it was just so pretty in there with the light coming through the windows and how beautiful it is. And I agreed with her, and then she agreed with me when I said this. God thinks the church is much more beautiful when you are all here. You are the church so if we make some design, we, we paint some things, and you're a little out of sorts, you'll forgive us because you are the real treasure, you're the real church, 
Um, let's pray and let's ask God to help us as we worship Him. Lord, we're, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful that we are once again given time to look at and hear from and meditate on Jesus Christ. We need to see Him. So we pray, as the Apostle Paul did, that you would give us a spirit of revelation into the knowledge of you. Send your spirit. Open our hearts to receive this word. Help me to be helpful. Lord, I I don't feel well. I pray that you would use and display your power in my weakness. Lord, help me to be forgettable and Jesus to be unforgettable. And help us to come away rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen. Diggory Kirk wants to be able to rejoice. He is the character in C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew. Diggory Kirk's mother is dying. And there's nothing the doctors can do. But he and his friend Polly start exploring around their kind of apartment building in London one day. And they're up in the attic and they learn that his uncle, Andrew, is able to figure out a way to travel between worlds, different kingdoms and different worlds. And uh, Diggory and his friend Polly are then thrust into this exciting and scary adventure. Pretty soon, they are encountering a giant witch who's awakened, who's too powerful. She travels to our world, and she's so tall that she can basically, and strong, she can just bend metal. They'd rejoice if she could be defeated. They'd rejoice if only Diggory's mom could be healed. They need some sort of power from another kingdom to defeat this witch, to heal this mother. If only there was such a way. And then Aslan, the great lion, speaks and creates this world, Narnia, but it's not quite done. He sends Diggory and Polly up into this garden by a pegasus. I haven't flown on any pegasuses. Neither of you. And they're up in this magical garden, and in this garden there are apples. And these apples will give life to those who eat them. And Diggory wants that apple. He wants it for his mom. If he could get that apple to his mom, bring the power from another kingdom into his world, then he would rejoice. But Aslan says, you cannot. You have to take that apple and you have to bury it here in Narnia. Lewis has tapped into something about rejoicing. In our world full of suffering and sickness and dying, we have evil and powerful enemies. If we are going to rejoice, we need power from another kingdom. We need life from another world. If we're going to be happy, if we're going to rejoice, this is what we need. And this is what we see today in Luke 13, 10 through 21. Please pray for me. The truths here are so great that my little frame and my little brain and my little heart can't really convey them to you effectively. But here we see where there's an apple that could come and save a dying mother, power from another kingdom in another world. Jesus doesn't just bring an apple. He brings the whole kingdom, brings the kingdom to this world. He's brought the kingdom himself. So he gives us hope. He gives us a cause to rejoice. Something that won't disappoint us, won't let us down. So here's the overarching theme, your application. Rejoice 
in the kingdom of God. Find your rejoicing in the kingdom of God, not in other places. Rejoice in the kingdom of God. So if only there was such a kingdom where there's life and love and healing, then we'd be happy, wouldn't we? We'd have what we need. And good news, there is. The kingdom of God is that world. And so we're going to look at two simple points, simple reasons why we should rejoice in the kingdom of God this morning. We're going to rejoice because of the power of the kingdom. We'll look at the power of the kingdom and why we should rejoice in that. And then secondly, we'll look at the triumph of the kingdom, triumph of the kingdom of God and why we should rejoice in that. So the power and then the triumph. Let's look first at the power of the kingdom of God. There's power in this kingdom from another world, and we should be rejoicing. Let's notice first that there is power to transform people. There's power to transform people. People can be changed. Let's see this in verses 10 through 13. Now he, that's Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, Jesus' care for women is a huge theme in Luke. Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Eighteen years. Eighteen years of disability. Jesus cares about people with disabilities. God cares. Eighteen years with no real answers from doctors or faith healers, or whatever. She probably at this point assumes her life is now a doubled over, bent over, long, slow walk into the grave. She's had 18 years of reasons for giving up hope. But one scholar points out, she still shows up to the synagogue. Still shows up for worship. At this point, she's probably not expecting any change. But she's faithful. And the king has come to the synagogue this week. The king has come to the worship service this Sabbath morning. He's teaching about the power of the kingdom of God. Power from another world, another kingdom. Power that's greater than the power of sickness. Power greater than the power of demons that might cause sickness. And look. He transforms her. She can stand. She can move. She can fulfill her purpose in life, which is to glorify God. That's what she does. She glorifies God. Think about the problems you face, that relationship that you can't quite get right. Think about those if-onlys where you fill in the blank. If only I had this, then life would be better. If only I had a little bit better job or a little bit better health, or if only I had a little bit less trials and struggles. But look, think about this. If people can be transformed, which of those problems cannot go away? If people can really be changed, there really is that power. Think about it. Health better, relationships better, Finance is better. All those things could be solved 
power to transform your love for substances or sexual sin or greed or self-harm. Transform to be content with what you have. Transform to take risks when it's wise and necessary. You don't have to be in fear. This is what the history of the kingdom of God is. It's a reason to rejoice. And when the king brings the kingdom in its complete fullness, this will be a never-ending reality. Transformed people living together forever. Our best days, folks, are ahead of us. When you get on YouTube and listen to those songs you love from high school and you think, if only I had a time machine. Life was so simple. No, your best days are ahead of you. They're ahead of you. The kingdom of God comes with power to heal, power to transform people. That's reason to rejoice. So rejoice in the kingdom of God. Rejoice in the power of the kingdom of God. We've seen the power to transform people. Now let's notice, secondly, surprisingly, the power to shame adversaries. There's power in this kingdom, and it's an unusual power for many of us. It's the power to shame its adversaries. People who resist it will be ashamed. Let's read verses 14 through 17. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from the bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Now, synagogues at this point in time functioned kind of like local churches. They actually started really when the people of God were in exile away from the temple in Babylon, and there were places where they, you would come for weekly worship. Our local church services really reflect this. There was prayers. There was the reading and teaching of Scripture. There was singing. There was fellowship. And what's really interesting is in Luke, the synagogue rulers are usually viewed very positively, but not here. This synagogue ruler has a plan for the morning. He's got a schedule. He's got an idea of what a worship service should look like. And someone has come and interrupted it. And he's angry. He's indignant. Jesus has been going around healing like a doctor. So this guy thinks, well, that's his job, doctor, healer. But the Sabbath is a day to rest from your work. So what are you doing healing today, Jesus? The Jewish law says you need to take a day off. And so this synagogue ruler isn't going to let someone just go around violating the rules. He's got to keep things neat and in order. But see, Deuteronomy 5.15, if you go back, tells us one of the reasons why the Jews had the Sabbath day. And one of those reasons was we're reflecting on the fact that God has redeemed us from slavery, where we were bound, where we were working all the time, where we just wanted to be free, where we wanted to be healthy again without people cracking the whip. 
And that salvation, that exodus where God brings people out of slavery is foreshadowing our salvation in Christ, where we were working ourselves to death like they were. But power came from another world then. Power came with signs and wonders, redeemed people, people who were working themselves to death. God exerted his rule and his reign. And now the Sabbath was meant to be a time to reflect and rejoice and be free and to be healed. It was meant to be a cause of rejoicing and rest and healing and worship. So Jesus points out the hypocrisy. He says, you know in your laws on the Sabbath, you've got your donkey or your ox, that beast of burden that's been working so hard, you give it its break. You lead it to the water. You untie it. You unbind it. And here's a woman from the line of Abraham, someone made in God's image. She's been bound for 18 years. Why shouldn't she be untied? She's more valuable than a donkey. And that obvious inconsistency puts Jesus' adversaries to shame. It's good for Jesus to be right. He says it's honorable to care for others. It's shameful and wrong to neglect others. Now, shame is very powerful. In Jesus' time, people were known by their family name. You are so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, from so-and-so, from somewhere. So you're Brett, the son of Mike, from Chuila. So you go somewhere, and people associate you with that family and with that place. And so if you make, you're not just carrying around the expectations, the interests of yourself, you're carrying around the expectations and interests of others. And if even as individualistic as we are, we still feel this because we're made this way. Shame is part of us. We celebrate when the team from our town, Gonzaga, plays in the national championship. When someone of our skin color is a victim or a perpetrator, we feel things. When someone of our faith is a hypocrite, it shames us too. We feel these things. It's unavoidable. God's made us this way, not just as individuals, but part of a whole. In Jesus' day, this was especially powerful. To be publicly shown to be wrong, to be shamed, that would feel worse than going to prison. Because see, at least you can get out of prison. But here, when you're shamed... It's like an invisible prison that follows you everywhere you go. When people look at you, people whisper about you, and you can't get out of it. Shame follows you everywhere. As humans, we should have an appropriate level of shame that we should feel. We should feel ashamed when we violated God's law. Our internal mechanisms are going off saying, something's not right here. If people really knew what I was like, if God really sees me like this, it's not good. And shame in its proper context can be the first step toward the path of honor. Remember, Adam and Eve sinned. They're ashamed of their nakedness, but that's the first step to healing. God clothes them with the skins of animals. Peter, ashamed of denying Jesus. But then, 
When he sees the risen Lord, he's the first one to dive into the water to get to Jesus, to be made right with Jesus. And notice the key point of this power to shame adversaries, and notice who this adversary is, a very religious person, a good churchgoer like you and me. This man loves his synagogue. He's got a plan. But Jesus, the bringer of the kingdom, has interrupted those plans. And this, by the way, is what the gospel always does. It always interrupts your plans, always brings a new kingdom with a new king to change you, always. So maybe you're here like the synagogue ruler, and you're all about rule keeping. You would never commit those sins. You would never say those things. You would never be like those people. And doggone it, that's why you come to church, to feel good about yourself. That's you. Now, I've been tempted to be like you at times, but when we are like that, we've forgotten that our purpose is to rejoice in Jesus, in His kingdom, that the power has come from another world. And if that's you, let me say something I've never said I don't think, certainly never from a pulpit, and say this lovingly. If that's you, if you're like this religious person, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should be ashamed of yourself, your plans, your trust in yourself, what you know, what you do, those are all about your own glory. That means you're trying to be God. And compared to the real God, you should be ashamed of yourself. You don't know everything. You can't do everything. You're not righteous and holy. So you must recognize that you're resisting the kingdom of God when you're like that. So we should be ashamed of ourselves in that way. But here's the really good news. The true king has come. He's come teaching and healing. He's brought the power of the kingdom. He says, if, if, if I'm casting out demons by the power of the Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come. It must be among you. And we, here's what we need to recognize. That all that shame we feel apart from Jesus is removed by the king. Jesus had to be shamed publicly for us. He died essentially naked next to a garbage dump in public view of all people with the wrath of God on a tree signifying that this person is cursed. What could be more shameful than that? But he did it as our substitute. He did it as our substitute. So the shame we feel as Christians is removed. It's gone. No more shame. You're free. God approves of you on the merits of another. Your shame is removed. It says Jesus despised the shame, went to the cross for the joy set before him. An eternity of suffering and shame is what we deserve, so we can let our shame go. We don't need to be his adversary. Care about what this king thinks, not what others think. So bow your knee today to Jesus. Welcome him into the synagogue of your heart. 
He must have his way. He must interrupt. Let him transform you with power. Let him say the hard things to you. And he'll straighten you out, just like this lady's back was. She didn't stand up straight, and then Jesus healed her. She came with her problems, and he made them right, fixed them. And look at the result. Glory to God. They're glorifying God, rejoicing. Everything done in history is meant to point to how wonderful Jesus is and how wonderful God is. When we see this clearly, we rejoice. The reason why we're not rejoicing all the time is there's, there's obstacles to us seeing Jesus in our flesh, in our sin, and in God's wisdom. If you are a Christian, though, this power has come to you, to your life. Others have missed it, but not you. Others have heard rumors, but not you. You've met the living God. That's a reason to rejoice. So rejoice in the kingdom of God. That means rejoicing in the power of God. Now let's see another reason to rejoice. That was the longer one if you're worried. We're going to look at the triumph of the kingdom of God. The triumph of the kingdom of God. And that will be a reason to rejoice. It's the display of the king's power in this woman's life that leads to Jesus giving some explanation to his listeners. Jesus doesn't really look like a king. He's not a warrior. He's not super well-dressed. He doesn't look like we would imagine a king to be. We'd expect the bringer of the kingdom to be different. Can we be sure that this kingdom will really succeed if he's the king? Jesus helps us. He teaches us. So the first way we look at this triumph for the kingdom of God is we look at the the fact that this triumph will bring security. The triumph will bring security. Look at verses 18 through 19. The triumph will bring security. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. When mustard seeds take hold, I understand from reading, is that they basically become a knot, almost impossible to, to remove. And so it's very unusual for a person to plant mustard in their garden. They plant it out in the fields, because you can't get it out of the garden once it's in there. But this mustard seed is a little different. This is not like go out and figure out what species of mustard seed Jesus is talking about. This is a different sort of mustard seed because it doesn't just grow into a bush. It grows into a tree. And it's a tree where the birds of the heavens can come and make their nests. A secure place where where the animals can't get up and get to them, where they're young and their eggs are all safe. A A secure place where you're safe from predators. So the kingdom of God will triumph and bring security. Now this imagery is used in Daniel chapter 4 about this King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He became a tree in this vision that provided shade for all sorts of animals, places for nests. But in his pride and in his sin, in not glorifying God, that tree was cut down wasn't safe place anymore. Humbled. And when at his death, his empire collapsed. The Medes and the Persians invaded, took over when his son was there. 
That is the survey of all human kingdoms, including the one we're tempted to make in our own little lives. It will not triumph, but the kingdom of God will triumph. There will be security. We'll be forever secure. If you view the kingdom of God as your real home, as your true citizenship, then you can rest secure. No matter what happens around you, no worrying, no need to to stress. And if there's none of that, what else is there to do but rejoice? If you've got nothing to worry about, rejoice. Rejoice in the kingdom of God. Rejoice in the triumph of the kingdom of God by knowing that it brings security. And now let's notice, lastly, that this triumph is inevitable. The triumph of the kingdom of God is inevitable. It will happen. Look at verses 20 through 21 with me. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, and it was all leavened. So three measures of flour, that's about 50 pounds. And now just a little leaven, a little yeast or something like that, put in into this big bag or this barrel of flour. It's gotten in. Now, earlier, leaven was viewed very badly regarding the teaching of the Pharisees, but here it's just viewed neutrally. What the, the question about the leaven is, what does the leaven do? And the leaven does its job. It does what leaven does. It grows. It impacts everything around it. It will leaven it all. So here's Jesus 2,000 years ago, a few followers. After his resurrection, his followers are in a group, probably, I, didn't, I don't know what the count is today, smaller than the number of people in this room, 120. 200 million people, demographers think, in the earth at that time. Put that in the balances. Almost 200 million people minus 120, 120. How could that possibly triumph? So there's no way the kingdom of God could triumph in our thinking. But Jesus says it must. The kingdom of God will impact everything, every single thing, everywhere. The triumph is inevitable. The kingdom of God will not lose. Kingdom people are winners, and winners celebrate. Winners rejoice. I was reading, rereading really, David McCullough's book, 1776. He talks about just how bad it was for uh, the Continental uh, Congress and armies when they were fighting against uh, the British Redcoats, 1776. Basically, uh, Washington has lost all credibility in his closest circles, and, and among some in his circles. So some of his closest advisors turning on him, citizens that had been really loyal to him, start helping the British. Foreign troops, foreign armies refuse to help because they're pretty much sure that the British are going to win and they don't want to be on the bad side when this is all over. And as I'm reading 1776, I'm thinking to myself, there is no way, no way that these Americans can win. But then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, wait, I live in the United States of America. 
we won. The triumph actually happened, no matter what it looked like. I knew the ending. I knew they would really triumph despite appearances. So when you're a part of the kingdom of God, you're on the winning side. The kingdom of God will triumph. It is inevitable. We need to evangelize fervently. We need to pray like crazy. We need to disciple people and be discipled. We need to love our children well, teach them God's way, honor God in our private lives. We need to pursue godliness with energy, not be hypocrites in private. And that's how God usually is going to accomplish, through means. He's going to use people. But that accomplishment, that triumph is inevitable. It can't be stopped. It will triumph. So jump on the bandwagon. Look to the future with joy. That witch from Narnia makes her first appearance in The Magician's Nephew. She's too powerful for this world. Too powerful. Bending metal with her hands. Way taller than the police officers of London. The power to, to defeat her must come from another world. World full of demons and a living devil. We need power from another world. And look, here it is. Right here, Jesus says. Rejoice, the kingdom of God is right here. More powerful than demons that bind woman's back, they must be defeated. He's too powerful for them. We need that power. Now, how does the kingdom of God work with the church over time? Uh, Roman Catholics have identified the kingdom of God as identical to the church. That's just not true. Uh, it's a little bit off, but they're closely related. The kingdom creates the church. So the God's power and his rule starts to give life to the church. It advances when the church advances. It exists within where a church exists. And the church is the primary tool of the kingdom, which means where God rules and reigns. The church witnesses to the kingdom's power, proclaims God's rule to others. And the church protects and clarifies God's kingdom. So when people act like they're in the kingdom or say they're in the kingdom but don't act like it, the church clarifies, says, no, actually, it doesn't seem that case. So a little church, an insignificant part of a country's population, there's growing persecution for Christians around the world. It can look so bad. It can look like the kingdom won't win. It won't triumph. But don't believe everything you see or are told. So rejoice, friends. We're building the kingdom of God. The kingdom will triumph. It will triumph. So rejoice as long as we follow the king. Keep following with us. Join us as we try to build his kingdom. We don't know exactly what that looks like in details in the city, but it means trying to help people glorify God, preaching Jesus, the king. We're not in survival mode. We're in victory mode. Now, there's suffering that comes along with it, but it's victory for sure. So we can be creative. We can serve others. We can humble ourselves and point to God, not ourselves. We are on the path to victory already. So your obedience will be successful. Your worship is actually meaningful. Your evangelism will bear fruit. Your discipling others will actually help people grow. The kingdom of God will happen. The kingdom guarantees this power. So join us. 
Help us extend his rule everywhere. The kingdom of God will triumph in the church. The kingdom of God will triumph in education. The kingdom of God will triumph in economics. The kingdom of God will triumph in health. The kingdom of God will triumph in science. The kingdom of God will triumph in relationships. The kingdom will triumph in systems of justice. The kingdom will triumph in the arts. The kingdom of God will eventually rule and reign everywhere and over everything when it comes in its fullness. Guaranteed said so right here, the leaven is going to fill it all. That's a reason to rejoice. Diggory wanted to steal the apple, he tr- but he trusted Aslan the king, trusted Aslan's words. He says, okay, I guess I'll let mom die, plant this apple, plant the core of this apple. And what happened in Narnia? Another tree grew with more apples. Naslan says, Diggory, you can take one. Take one to your mother. Diggory takes mother back into our world, takes an apple to his mother in our world. She eats it. She's healed. Even if she had been sick for 18 years, she's healed. And Diggory's dad moves back for good from India. He and Polly become lifelong friends. They, get, they inherit a big mansion in the hills. That's a picture of the age to come when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Friendship, health, wholeness, confidence in a good king. How could Diggory not rejoice at the end of the story? Power from another world changed things. It's changing us. It's changing us every day. So let's rejoice in the kingdom of God and let's pray for it now. Father, we confess with our master that we should pray more faithfully and eagerly as he taught us. So we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, help us to be builders of your kingdom. Help us to rejoice in what the kingdom of God is doing. Help us to persevere in the small battles, knowing that the large war has been won. God, help us to be rejoicing people. Help us to recognize the fact that the triumph is coming, not because of us, but because of our King, who's defeated death for us, brought righteousness for us, removed our shame from us. Lord, if anyone here doesn't know you, we pray they would humble themselves. They would feel the shame they should feel and then quickly go to Jesus who removes their shame. We pray that we would be a church transformed by the power of the kingdom of God. Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and I want to read from Revelation verse 19, chapter 19 beginning in verse 6. Picture of the kingdom in its fullness. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her 
to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So we have a little tiny snack of a meal here. Little piece of bread, little glass thing of wine or grape juice. But what it is, is it's a preview. It's a preview of the kingdom of God in fullness, which is a feast, a celebration of a wedding, of a victory. So as you eat this and drink this, you want to be reminded that your best days in the kingdom of God are ahead of you, no matter the hard road that's going there. And this is for people who have embraced the king and entered the kingdom of God. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, we want you to stay in your seat. We're not going to judge you in any way, but we want you to be honest about yourself. We want you to feel the, the privilege of being honest. You don't need to hide in shame from us. We would be honored to welcome you into the kingdom of God, teach you how to know the king. If you have questions, ask people around you. Um, but just stay in your seat for today. We'll also have elders and wives on stage to pray. If you need prayer for anything, relationships, health, things like that, God answers prayers. Even if you're tempted to give up, maybe it's been 18 or 20 years, unanswered prayer. Let's not give up. Let's seek the king and his help. Uh, the way this works, there'll be two lines down the uh, aisle here. Uh, you'll grab and you can partake on the spot and, or, or take it back to your seat, wherever you'd prefer. You can drop your cups just in the garbage cans as you go. Uh, if one line starts, we get near the end and one line's really long and there's none of the others, you could change lanes. No one's going to look down on you for that. But take just a moment and rejoice in your heart of what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. Be able to be a place where people are transformed, where healing is coming, where triumph is coming. Let's warm our hearts to that truth and rejoice in Jesus the King who brings it and his broken body, shed blood that are represented by the bread and wine. Um, if you're a musician or elder or elder's wife, feel free to come forward uh, now and I'll call the rest forward momentarily.